Welcome to the inaugural season of the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dittman, co-lead of Stoll Reeves Agribusiness, Food, Beverage, and Timber Industry Group. This season, we're interviewing respected industry leaders and discussing how they and their companies are embracing innovation and capitalizing on new opportunities to move their industries forward in an ever-changing world. Subscribe at Stoll.com, that's S-T-O-E-L dot com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dittman. Today, I'm talking with Kevin Adams, Principal and Managing Director at The Mountain Group, about business succession and generational dynamics in the forest and agricultural industries. Welcome to the studio, Kevin. Thanks, Adam. It's great to be here. Great. So, Kevin, before we jump in, why don't you give our listeners um, a quick sense of your background and um, what you and The Mountain Group do as your day jobs? The Mountain Group is a company that's been around since 1996, and, and we focus, we're small Pacific Northwest focused consulting company. We do business advisory services and and the bulk of our work is in three areas. We still do a fair amount of turnaround and that's our roots is in true turnarounds, chapter 11 work. Uh, We do work with a lot of mergers and acquisitions, companies that as project managers, we're not investment bankers, but we are shareholder representatives and we, we manage the process on behalf of the shareholders or the, the investors that are making the acquisition. And we do a fair amount of family succession. Um, that's uh, rooted in the Pacific Northwest. We only take projects in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Western Montana. And in that world, it's a lot of ag, it's a lot of timber, it's a lot of family businesses, and family succession is a big issue there. Yeah, I can I can imagine. I mean, so look, it seems like you mentioned, um, you know, generational transition. Um, business succession is an ever-present consideration, and frankly, I would say tension almost in many privately held businesses, um, but particularly in the ones you mentioned, right? And, and you know, I, I suppose my view of that is, you know, by their very nature, um, they're generational, or uh, at the very least, they're heavily populated with family legacy businesses. And in your role, Kevin, I can imagine that you have advised companies who maybe do this quite well, and there are probably more likely those who struggle with it. And that's probably why they <laughs> reach out to you to talk about it. And so um, I'm, I'm hoping that you can start out today by sharing with our listeners kind of your first, your kind of 10,000 foot level perspective on the importance of proactively kind of planning for generational change uh, and business succession. Well, you're, you know, Adam, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, successions are always complicated, even in a non-family business setting. Uh, you, you've got so many different players that are being affected, the departing CEO, the incoming CEO, uh, the organization, particularly the firm's executives, um, shareholders, investors, debt holders. And in, in some court situations, in some settings, vendors, customers, the community, all of them are affected by succession. And so it takes it takes a fair amount of work. And the family business adds all those extra dimensions. You know, you've got the, the basic three circles of family business. You know, a, a member of, a member can be in the member of a family, it can be a shareholder, it can be in the management or, or some combination thereof. And that just adds adds dynamics and and issues that are are really difficult to parse. Plus, you got the whole fact that somebody is picking from the family someone to run the business, the family business. Which means there are a lot of people that weren't picked, and uh, it's it's uh, it's a it's an interesting dynamic. And I'm just dealing with generation one to generation two. By the time you start talking about, we do we're doing a fair amount of work at the moment with generation four to five or generation three to four, and that that council of cousins is a is a whole other set of dynamics. Um, 
it's 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 tough. And then usually at the same time, there's uh, some transfer shares that are taking place. They're you know, dad is deciding who he's going to give the the, the economic ownership to. It, it you know, I, I have I started out as as a COO in a family business. I ended up becoming the CEO in that family business 30, 40 years ago. And it was, um, you know, there's, there's, there's all that family dynamics that takes place when the CEO transitions. It's, it's a, the family system is, is altered. It's a, and there's always somebody who feels like they should have gotten that, that mantle and didn't, they didn't get that preferred status that they were, they were hoping for. So it's, it's a, it's a tough deal. Right, right. Well, and, and family dynamics, like you say, obviously play a, a huge role in this, both in creating potential problems, but also I presume family dynamics also play an important role in forging solutions to, to these things. So, you know, I guess, you know, it, it, from your experience base, you know, and in your opinion, for the companies that struggle most with business succession, and I'll focus on family business succession, you know, where do you think they, they tend to go wrong? What are kind of the common, the common pitfalls that, that you observe in your role? Adam, I, I like to answer the question kind of in reverse and talk about the things that I see that make for successful successions. You know, I think one of the first things is that the family has fostered really healthy relationships that aren't dependent on the business. It's so easy when you are a CEO of a company to be wholly consumed by the responsibilities of that leadership. And if it's a family business, then a lot of those family relationships are centered around the business. Every family dinner, every family gathering gets consumed by business conversation. Successful families have have intentionally developed relationships with the family members that aren't based around the business. And it takes intentionality. You have to create business-free zones. This holiday, we will not talk business. You have to have regular one-on-one times with your children to build those relationships. You have to seek out those relationships, especially with an adult. And if, you, if you've done that and you've created those foundations, then that fosters trust and provides assurance to those people who aren't being picked to be CEO that they still have a relationship with their, with their parents and that they can uh, rely on that and, and use it going forward. The second thing that I think really sets a family up for successful succession is a family employment policy that only allows employment based on meritocracy. And by meritocracy, I mean that the the person has a job that they are both competent for and they're motivated to fulfill. It is often seen that employment is a way of providing economic gifting to family, and that's destructive. If the family has rigorously enforced employment by meritocracy, that builds a healthy culture inside the organization and within the family that provides uh, support for succession. I also think a real important factor is clear boundaries between what it means to be in the family, be a shareholder, and be in management. Family members who aren't in management and aren't in shareholders may have some, some thoughts or ideas about how the company should be moved forward, but it really isn't their role. It is the role of a shareholder and a manager to decide what direction the company takes. And the shareholder has a responsibilities that are limited. It's ultimately the shareholder's company. They get to decide values and strategies and the kinds of risks that are taken and the, and the, the level of, of acceptable financial returns. But they don't have the right to determine the operating practices of the business. That's for managers to do. And when family members have both hats, shareholders and managers, they have to know which hat 
they are wearing it at a moment and only use the shareholder hat at the appropriate shareholder gatherings and the management hat at the appropriate management gatherings. This can be really tricky. Um, you know, a real common problem we run into is when a husband's invested in a business, for example, and the wife uh, is the CEO and the husband wants to express opinions on which, uh, which accounting practices are being implemented and how it's being marketed. And the wife has to sit down and build boundaries with her husband and say, look, you are a shareholder. You have the right to make these kinds of decisions, but not have the, but I allow me the right to manage and run this, this business the way I see fit. If you have created those kind of boundaries and everybody has healthily adopted them, that is a great, a great setup for succession. And the last thing I would say is that the CEO has already put in place some system of voluntary accountability, that there is a, usually that's done with a board of directors. And not an advisory board, but a true board that, that sets goals for that CEO. The CEO accepts, even though he may be a majority shareholder, and that he is he's accountable to. Ideally, the board is actually the party that runs and manages succession. Uh, if even if even if the CEO is involved, having a board there as an intermediary party helps provide a business spin on all of the discussions without letting those family factors overshadow the business factors. Um, those, those elements, if you have those elements in place, you really set yourself up well for succession. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, that's a great point, Kevin. And I was gonna, I, was, I mean, I was gonna ask you, you know, a, a lot of times, especially with these legacy businesses, the business is kind of, um, at least from a public perception standpoint, um, kind of seen synonymously with the individual personalities behind it. But a lot of times, uh, at least in my experience, I've seen companies, you know, where, you know, the family members who are involved, right, and, and family members on the board, right, may not necessarily uh, possess the um, the business acumen or the the background to make decisions maybe for the enterprise in, in the most kind of efficient way. And so, you know, you're, you're talking about the importance of a board and particularly um, outside directors on a board, you know, at what stage would you say it's advisable to to do that? I'm going to cut you off a little bit first and say, obviously, maybe from the beginning might be the very best. But the reality is a lot of these boards are populated by uh, family members and have been for um, sometimes decades. And so when is the best stage or how is the best way to introduce the idea of non-family members to board membership? First of all, we're assuming a certain scale to the business. I mean, uh, you're going to if you're going to you're going to pay an outside director to be on your board, or you should be paying your outside director to be on your board. Uh, a small company is going to pay fourteen to fifteen thousand dollars a year. A large company, maybe forty to seventy. A public company will, will pay over a hundred. These people are taking on real responsibilities, and they have fiduciary obligations that lawyers like yourself will be happy to remind them of. So it's appropriate that they get paid, and to justify spending money on two or three or four outside directors, there has to be a certain scale scale to the business. And so we're, we're assuming right from the beginning that this, this company is 50 to 100 million in revenue or more, has a few hundred employees. Um, and, and I think below that scale, boards become, become tougher to manage and, and maybe more cumbersome than they're worth. But the, in, if you have that kind of a scale of the business, then as fast as you can get a board in place is when you should do it. And, and I wouldn't just put it, you can't just have one outside director. You have to have at least two and, I, and ideally three. Um, people talk in terms of board size as a five to seven. 
Uh, it's very common to have family business with three outside directors and four family members. A family member on a board has to step up and be willing to commit the same energy and, and, and learning that's necessary. And if you come to it and your only background is as a warehouse manager, you have to, you have to engage and learn the kinds of skills that other board members would have to have. The fact that you're a family member doesn't accept you from the responsibilities of a board member or having that education. You just have to, you just have to work harder at it. Family members have a, a, oftentimes, especially as you get to generation three and generation four, outside directors will become the majority and family members become a, a minority. And I think that's appropriate. Uh, it, the family members bring a set of values to the and, and a set of legacy issues that I think really adds strength to a company. And a good set of outside directors will appreciate that. I want to throw out one more thing. It's after, you, after you get a board set up, it's really helpful to have a lead director. I started following this trend about 10 years ago, and then I've really got, I was motivated, I don't know, just a few years ago by some of the stories that I was hearing about the power of lead directors. I've used it now in a couple settings. It's really good. A lead director is one outside director that the entire board gives permission to speak to the family, you know, in a constructive and, and direct way. The, they take the chairman of the board is usually the exiting CEO or as a family member. This person engages with that individual to make sure the agendas are, are accurate, to give feedback on family performance, to raise issues that are touchy to raise as a group. A lead director, a really professional businessman can be a very, very effective addition to the board. Yeah, I like that. I've I've actually also seen um, that deployed successfully um, with um, certain certain companies that I've worked with that that have you know heavy family uh, kind of population um, sur surrounding them, and I've found that to be um, you know it's a liaison role, but at the same time you know it's it's got the um, kind of the um, the added weight and importance of you know this is message coming from you know a director who's involved in you know kind of the the enterprise is a going concern and can kind of translate some of the concerns that may be family concerns or personal concerns into, you know, what is the concern for, you know, kind of from the, the perspective of the enterprise? It, it also can give, it can give management another point of contact to the board, which can be helpful. And, it, and actually family members can, can reach out to a lead director and say things that they want to say that they don't have a chance to. So I, I think it adds a lot. Can I make one more comment about boards? Um, Absolutely. It's really, a, it's really common for all shareholders to want to be on a board, especially in that one to two transition or generation two to three transition. And that's a mistake. Uh, one of the things that, that, that the shareholders have to do is find a board that they trust and not feel like they have to be involved in it to get good decisions. And that's a psychological decision. I'm gonna trust this group more than it is anything else. Yeah, but I, I find that, that being able to walk that transition through is, is a big cornerstone to a successful succession. Yeah, no, I absolutely hear you there. So Kevin, if I can unpack something uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago when you said it's important at least to have some family voice um, you know, on, the, on the board and, and you said it requires you know, investment from that person you know, to the same degree that a you know, professional director you know, might uh, invest. And so as we talk about um, generational change and succession and going from one to two, two to three, three to four, I would think with each level of abstraction, 
there may be a tendency for um, the the individuals involved to be kind of less and less connected to the business itself for what it is and rather, you know, maybe view it as just kind of the source of um, the, the lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, one, one question I have is, you know, what have you seen work kind of in terms of keeping the G2, G3, G4s interested enough and kind of apprised enough of what's going on that they can make that investment and, and maybe be a family director? I mean, some companies I've seen, they'll, you know, they'll pay family uh, members a stipend to kind of come and attend board meetings and just kind of listen and not really play, play a role, but learn as much as they can about the company. Um, I'm curious what you've seen and what works. I mean, is financial incentive enough here or is there something more? So let's, let's, and let's also say this isn't just for a family member who wants to be a member of the board. It's also true of a family member who wants to be a shareholder. You know, a shareholder has a responsibility too. They elect the board. They, they are the ultimate authority. It's their company. And, and there's a, in a small family business, the shareholder, you know, has to, has to be able to read a financial statement, understand the, the core issues that the company faces. So it, 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 any shareholder needs to have a certain level of education. You asked two questions. What have I seen and what's been effective? What I, what I've seen is a whole variety of options. A, a lot of companies endeavor to, work with their kids when they're about 12 to 13, a generation when it hits about 12 or 13, bringing them into the company, having annual or semi-annual business gatherings, having management come and explain the business to them. Those can be successful. The uh, financial incentive is, is always to show up is always good. There is a inevitability though, that by the time you get to generation three and generation four, there's going to be 40 cousins, let's say, 10 of them are going to be passionate about the business. 30 of them are going to be involved in something else, arts, sports, medicine, um, just not interested in business at all. The, the, <laughs> at that point, they become passive shareholders. And uh, I've seen companies develop non-voting stock for those individuals that don't want to engage in the business. So that the, they are there. The most successful families, though, are those that create wealth assets independent of the family business. The, the business is a living organism. And the capital that is generated by that must, first of all, be reinvested to sustain the health and growth of that organism. And the family's reliance on that income, especially as you get to generation three and generation four, can produce a real conflict. And, and I Oftentimes on the dark side of my business, the chapter 11 work, walk into companies that, that you know, they've, they've consumed, the, they've consumed the, the body and that has left it in a crippled position. And, and it's so the, the taking out of that income from the company and putting it into a, uh, a, an investment portfolio or a fund. And it's from that portfolio that the income comes that can produce a really powerful tool for dealing with shareholders that aren't interested in the business because they can still participate in the wealth that's in the portfolio um, and they can swap and trade shares out so that those that are interested in the business can, can be there. Probably the most interesting succession I've ever heard, and, and it, it's a Pacific Northwest company. It's not Every generation sold all the company assets. They sold the companies, they sold everything they had, 
and they gave the next generation their cash proceeds that they could then use to pursue whatever endeavors they wanted to to pursue. <laughs> so the company went from industry to industry. This has gone on now for four or five generations. Other families forcibly require the successor to buy out all of his other siblings. If you want to be in charge, you have to leverage yourself to buy out the shares of all your siblings or cousins. Well, yeah, I mean, those are, um, those are some pretty um, intense, creative, you, you name the adjective, um, strategies. Um, I, I think the one where, where you, uh, that you mentioned about separating the, um, you know, some of the, the wealth that's generated from um, the, the operation of the going concern and putting it into a different vehicle where um, maybe non, non-interested, for lack of a better term, um, you know, family members, shareholders, what have you, can kind of participate in some of the, the economic benefit uh, kind of without necessarily bearing the same level of responsibility toward the management is a, a, very, a very interesting idea. And I would be curious to see, um, you know, how many companies would employ a strategy like that. I, I would have a, a suspicion that that might be quite successful and frankly reduce a lot of tensions. I mean, I've, I, in my experience, I've seen companies where, you know, you, you have the common example where, you know, the, the, the non-founding generation has grown up with the company as a, a source of kind of economic or, or personal support, right? And, you know, classic examples, you know, you have the, the person, you know, non-employee family member bring their truck into the truck shop and change out the tires for them, kind of free of charge, right? And you can probably name a thousand of those from, uh, from, from your experience too, but I've always just felt that um, that's the that's probably the wrong uh, way to to treat the enterprise, and so it is a very um, interesting idea that you're that you've seen deployed um, to kind of separate that lifestyle um, economic um, provision feature of participation from kind of management and responsibility um, uh, features. You know, it's really important, Adam. I, I think the most debilitating board meetings you've probably seen these yourselves is was when. Aunt Martha, it's time to set the dividends for the year. And Aunt Martha depends on the dividends. And the board is trying, the board needs to grow something or, or repair something or, or chase an opportunity. But it means Aunt Martha is not going to get her stipend this year. That's, that's not a decision the board should have to make. You know, if, if the, the board should be saying, am I giving an adequate return on capital? Am I providing the right kind of economic returns on the asset base that I have, that's all legitimate. But those other conversations about Aunt Martha quickly devolved, in my experience, to she doesn't need the money. She just bought a new car. She's got a condo she can sell in Florida. You know, that's that's not a board level conversation. I don't know if you have you ever been in a board meeting like that? Have you ever seen those? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think honestly that that is the type of situation that repeats itself over and over to cause frictions, family tensions in legacy businesses in the, you know, timber and agribusiness spaces. I think um, one question that I have, right, is, okay, so there are methods, right, that companies can try to successfully manage generational change, um, business decision-making succession, um, you know, share owner, you know, company ownership succession. But there's also situations, I can imagine you've experienced some of them yourself, where the tension just can't be overcome. And so my question for you is, how do you recognize when that's the case 
And what are the kind of the, the major factors that lead you as a business advisor to decide, okay, it's probably time to recommend selling the enterprise rather than trying to hang on and, and manage the generational tension much longer? Adam, that's a great question. There are many financial and emotional elements that come to play in deciding to sell a business. In our experience, it's the emotional side that's usually the driver of the sale. A majority of owners lack a purpose for holding on to the business. They don't have a passion for continuing its operation. Or perhaps groups of shareholders have developed mutually exclusive and very divergent views on where the company should be, go or what it should become. If they're unable to reconcile those differences and neither side has the wherewithal to buy out the other, a sale is probably inevitable. Financial factors can be important. In ag in particular, income from a farming operations often is a small portion of what could be earned from selling the land and investing the realized value. Even here though, you know, the discussions always include stewardship of the land, a desire to preserve a legacy farm, the risks the individuals are comfortable managing, and sometimes it's the risks that are, are the deciding factor. I had a family meet with many wealth advisors who constantly encouraged them to sell their farms in the Midwest and invest the money in the stock market, showing in many ways how they could earn so much more money by investing in stocks and bonds than by maintaining their farming operations. When no one in the family wanted to operate the farms any further, the family chose to put it under a professional farm manager's control rather than sell the farms. They just felt more comfortable with the risks associated with crops rather than the risks of the stock market, and they were very content with this holding, and the farms continue into this day. It's gone through one more generational transition, and it may be that the next generation actually does decide to sell the farms. But the emotional factors tend to be the most dominant, and I think legitimate reasons for deciding to sell. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, that, that that's very useful. I mean, I think um, for the companies that struggle with these issues, that's kind of the ever-present specter that um, kind of floats behind them and haunts them. And I think that, you know, based on, you know, the experiences that I've had with companies kind of in that position, I think it's helpful to kind of hear perspectives like yours about, well, when is it time that that specter actually taps me on the shoulder and, and scares me into to taking action on on selling the company? What you don't want to do is wait so long that you can't fix what's broken. Sometimes dysfunction is allowed to continue to the point where, where it hurts the business. The other point I'd make there, Adam, is it's, it's important to remember that not all businesses are meant to last forever. Uh, everybody quotes the rags to riches to rags and three generations uh, quote. And, and that's, that's probably true. But if you look at regular companies, not family businesses, a 50-year life cycle is a pretty long life cycle. So it's, it's okay if you sell your business or if your business goes away. It, it, served, its, it served its time in, in its season. And that's, that's, that's something that families ought to recognize as well. It's not, it's not a failure. It's just a transition. Well, Kevin, I, I really appreciate you coming in today and, and telling our audience kind of your perspectives on these issues. I mean, uh, you know, again, I think with, um, especially with family and legacy businesses in the, in the industries that we serve, um, you know, these are things that they think about. Some, some people probably think about them more than they would like to. Um, but we appreciate your, your perspectives. It's always a real pleasure to hear um, kind of what you're seeing in the market and, and um, kind of your views on, on ways to, to sort these issues out. Kevin, is there, is there anything, any other parting thoughts um, that you'd want to share with our listeners today? I guess there's, I have two. One is if you're, if you're the CEO and you're planning succession, I think the most important thing you can do is to set a date and say, I'm going to do it by X date. 
and then begin assessing where your where your family's relationships are at and start to build towards that that succession date. Uh, and that also means you have to start planning for your activities after that date so that you have something to fill your life with. That the the the, the setting of the date and the care and feeding post exit are are really important uh, steps for the exiting CEO to take. The the second thing I, I often get asked her is how do I get the founder to <laughs> to 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 plan for succession. We've had a couple of situations where people in their 80s, even 90s, have have called and said, "Everybody tells me I need to think about succession. I don't want to, but what should I do?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the children are the ones, obviously, that are trying to hire me to do this, and and I keep telling every one of them, guys, it is the shareholders' business, and if the shareholder is the CEO and they don't want to succeed. You know, that's the Prince Charles problem. <laughs> it's just, it's not, it's not going to happen. And, and you need to accept and recognize that and plan your life accordingly. All right. Well, thank Kevin. Thanks again. I'm always so impressed by the creative uh, perspectives and kind of level-headed um, approach you take to, to answering tough questions like this. They're, they're not easy and they, they plague a lot of businesses. So again, uh, you know, thanks for coming. I, I, I appreciate uh, your thoughts on it. I'm sure the Mountain Group's clients appreciate your thoughts on it too. Um, <laughs> we hope so. So uh, appreciate it. Thanks for joining Adam, us. Adam, it's always great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. To follow along and get additional insights from each episode, visit stoll.com. Please also take a moment to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is not legal advice, and the podcast doesn't create a client-attorney relationship.